You better hope Jesus save you. You better hope Jesus save you. You better hope Jesus save you. You better hope Jesus save you, save you, save you, save you, Jesus. You better hope Jesus save you, save you, save you, save you, save you. You better hope Jesus save you, save you, save you, save you, Jesus. You better hope Jesus ain't you, ain't you, ain't you, ain't you, ain't you, ain't you. better hope Jesus ain't you, ain't you, ain't you, ain't you, Jesus. You better hope Jesus ain't you, ain't you, ain't you, ain't you, Jesus. You better hope Jesus ain't you, ain't you, ain't you, ain't you, ain't you, ain't you. You better hope Jesus say so. Say your soul, 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 say your soul. You better hope Jesus ain't soul, say soul, say soul, say soul, Jesus. You better hope Jesus save soul, say soul, say soul, say soul, say soul, say. You better hope Jesus say so, say so, say so, say so, Jesus. You better hope Jesus say so, say so, say so, say it so, say it so, say it so. You better hope Jesus save you, save you, save you, save you, say so, say so, Jesus. Hope Jesus ain't you, ain't you, ain't you, ain't you, ain't you, ain't you. You Why do I like this movie? Why do I like this movie? I just kept watching it over and over and over, and I said, what is it that's pulling me towards the movie? And you were sitting there saying, well, what's pushing me away from the movie? (laughs) Out of all the movies that I could like and that I do like, why am I liking this one so much? It was annoying me that I couldn't figure out what it was that really drove me to watch it several times. I've seen that movie so many times. but How many, how many times have you actually seen Oh, probably 50. Yeah. And I'm just like, when I perform it, I'm just like, oh, wait, 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 look at that, look at that. A 10-sentence synopsis of this film, I think that's going to be kind of impossible. Hey there, it's Nick. I wanted to do something a little bit different. That is, I wanted to actually give you a little background on the conversation you're about to hear. Weird. It's with Tracy Morris. Morris is a poet and sound artist, and I first saw her perform a piece called Eyes Wide Shut, a not neo Benchy read at the ICA in Richmond, Virginia. I had never heard of Benchy before, but it's a Japanese tradition of live narration from the silent film era. And Morris used that as inspiration for a live poetry reading during a screening of the Stanley Kubrick film, Eyes Wide Shut. It's a film that, when I saw it as a teenager shortly after it came out, I despised. Eyes Wide Shut was Kubrick's last film. He died just six days after completing the final cut in 1999. 
In it, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, who were married in real life at the time, play a married couple, Bill and Alice. After getting into an argument, Alice tells her husband, Bill, that a year prior to that, she saw a naval officer in a hotel, as in she literally saw him. They didn't even speak with one another. And her attraction to him was so intense, she briefly considered leaving the family. That's it. She made eyes with a hot guy and thought about leaving the family for a second. But this news is so upsetting to Bill that he immediately goes on an all-night bender during which he unsuccessfully solicits a prostitute and eventually sneaks into an orgy party run by a shadowy cabal of powerful rich people. For me, the main hurdle to enjoying the film is Bill's completely over-the-top reaction to what I personally would consider an extremely minor transgression of marital fidelity. The film repeatedly comes back to Bill's imagined scenes of Alice having sex with the sailor, intercut with shots of Tom Cruise's face in the throes of debilitating jealousy. These are scenes that become increasingly tedious with every repetition. A few days after I first watched it, I had dinner with a group of middle-aged folks who had already seen it. They all loved it, and rather patronizingly, I felt, told me that I would understand when I was older. I took this to mean they felt I would eventually become consumed with the kind of toxic insecurity that plagues Bill. I don't know if that's a fair interpretation or just a teenager lashing out against generational baggage. But 20 years later, when I heard about Tracy Morris's upcoming performance, I thought it would be a great opportunity to put that claim to the test. And, I'm sorry to say, I had pretty much the exact same reaction. I just couldn't get past how supremely annoying Tom Cruise is. But Morris, Morris adores this film. And when she spoke after the screening, the exhilaration she displayed when describing it made me question if I had wildly misinterpreted everything I had just watched. On this show, I often ask you, at least implicitly, to get out of your comfort zone. And it's in that spirit that I wanted to get out of my comfort zone a little bit and try to understand what I might be getting wrong about Eyes Wide Shut. Tom Cruise in that movie is playing the most naive person in the whole movie. And you don't see the ingenue framed like a guy like Tom Cruise, especially in at the time in the 1990s when he and Nicole Kidman were the it couple. You don't see a guy who at that time especially was presented very masculine, sexy, straight, wealthy, the gorgeous wife. As the most naive person in the whole movie, he knows the least about what's going on in the whole movie. And he tries to do, in quotes, the right thing, even when he's mad. But he just doesn't know anything. Everybody knows more than him. And I'm just like, why did Kubrick do that? It's not just that he he doesn't know stuff, but he's like, doesn't even know about how the world works. You know what I mean? It's not like he's out. It's like a mystery where he's he doesn't have certain pieces of information. It's like he's he's actually a naive person. You know? Yeah, yeah. He's an innocent. He's an ingenue. And the scene where he and Nicole Kidman are smoking a joint. Or I shouldn't say. Well, he and Alice, Bill and Alice, are smoking a joint. I think we both know what men 
are like. So on that basis, I should conclude that you wanted to fuck those two models. There are exceptions. What makes you an exception? What makes me an exception is that I happen to be in love with you. And of course he says the thing he's supposed to say. Well, because you're my wife and I love you and I know you wouldn't, you know. But at a certain point, because this character, she knows this man. And she's like, that's not what you're saying. What you're saying is women don't actually have desire. Men have to stick it in every place they can. But for women, women, it is just about security and commitment and whatever the fuck else. And he agrees with this point. He says... Well, it's oversimplified, but yes. A little oversimplified, Alice, but yes, something like that. If you men only knew. And you're like, oh, see, now I know why she's pissed off. Because he has no sense of who she is. This is somebody who's very much out of touch with his sexuality, the way that I read it. Even the way that he exudes sexuality to other people. He just doesn't know. Do you suppose we should... Talk about money? Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) But it depends on what you want to do. What do you want to do? Well, what do you recommend? What do you recommend? It's another one of my favorite scenes. (laughs) The actor is perfect. She just says, what do I recommend? (laughs) What do I recommend? Um... She's so trying to hold it together. She's like, I've never heard that in my entire life of being a prostitute. I'd I'd rather not put it into words. You just think, does he really know anything about sex and sexuality and a woman's body besides the clinical? No. He thinks he's at a certain status, and he's even wrong about that. I'm a doctor. He's always pushing, pulling his doctor card out. He's showing people he's a doctor. And yeah, so, so b- b- Becca, set, set that up a little bit more because this is one of the most interesting points I think you, you made. Um, can you just, for someone who hasn't seen the film, like what is his social class, I guess, for lack of a better term? He is a doctor that works with elite people. Uh, he has a probably Park Avenue practice somewhere. He helps people and he refers people like Victor Ziegler. But... Victor and he are not in the same class. He thinks he's in the same class because he helps people like Victor. He's not in the same class because he helps people like Victor. Excuse me, ladies. Sorry, Dr. Harper. Sorry to interrupt. I wonder if you could come with me for a moment. Something for Mr. Ziegler? Oh, uh, fine. He's help, and he doesn't realize he's help. Now, there are different echelons of help that I think is a very class focused picture and we see people at different strata in Kubrick's film but he is not even in the same universe as Victor Ziegler it was great seeing you both cheers cheers we don't know what Ziegler does we don't know why Ziegler does what he does we don't even know why he has these parties we don't even know the people at these parties that's a 25 year old I'll send you over case no Sure. No. Victor always talks about playing. He never talks about working. You, uh, you feel like playing? 
No. Victor's interest doesn't have to work. You know what I mean? That was just... Uh... One of my favorite scenes in the movie, and there's so many that I love, is uh, when Victor puts his hands on uh, Bill's shoulders, when Bill is, like, in the corner realizing that Victor is lying to him. Suppose I told you that... that everything that happened to you there... The threats, the, the, the girl's warnings, her last-minute intervention. Suppose I said that all of that was staged. That it was a kind of charade. That it was fake. Fake. Yes. Fake. Victor is absolutely lying to him. And um, he realizes he's trapped and he can't manage it. Kubrick loves actors. I don't know how he treated actors. I mean, I know that he that Tom Cruise was... He had to go through many, many takes just because I think Kubrick was breaking down the character and breaking down the actor, which is, you know, a choice, I guess. Uh, I wonder if people have ever asked him. I mean, I know that he and, uh, and uh, Nicole Kimmon said they worshipped Kubrick. They just would do anything that he said. And they, they were very, you know, they talked about how much his loss meant to them. But I think um, in general, he really loves actors and he appreciates actors, Kubrick. Good evening. Good evening. I'm Dr. Hartford. And one of my patients was admitted earlier this morning, Miss Amanda Curran. There's a, a death in the movie, and Tom Cruise's character, Bill, is going to the mortuary to confirm the death of this person. Uh, her name again? Curran. There's an orderly, one of the few black characters we see on screen. Not so in the original, in the earlier script, but in this scene. Yeah, I want to get to that. And um, he just takes him there, and he, uh, the orderly brings the body out of the drawer, or whatever that they call it, and then he just steps to the side. It's, it's very small. But Kubrick makes sure to give him care, that actor, that moment. And I just feel touched by it. I think the actor did a wonderful job. You know, they say no small roles, just small actors. I think that he embodied that in that little moment that he had. The only person who didn't get any attention, who had a, a larger presence in the film, was Kubrick. You never saw him, but he was actually uh, made a cameo in the movie. It's a super white film. Mm -hmm. I think there's two black characters in the whole thing. Yeah, that are and, that are actually featured. Yeah, I think they're in the the first party. There's a couple of black people like floating in the back um, that are not even like really f focused on. It's just notable because it's the whiteness. Right. Uh, but yeah, but but besides that, there are two characters that you see: the orderly and the bodyguard. Which is not the case in the original script. He, and he removed black people from the script. Yeah, so when did you find when did you find that out? When I when I read those earlier scripts at the Kubrick Archives in London, 
the, he, he removed black characters from earlier versions of the script. He is making a political comment, I think, about the absence of black characters in the film to highlight danger and uh, sort of meta-commentary on the type of world that uh, Bill Harford allows himself to be in. He doesn't have black patients. Um, there are There is a, a Latina woman uh, that is featured as the maid of one of his clients um, that we see, Rosa. And um, I think, as far as I know, those are the three characters of color that come to mind immediately from the film. It is interesting to see who he took out. One of the models who was hitting on him at, the par- at Victor's party was originally a black character. And he also, in an earlier version, had a driver. Bill Harford had a driver, and that chauffeur was black. So now we see him in a cab, which creates more of that class contrast that we were seeing. And the model being white and with a particular type of posh British accent, uh, it was that character who was originally a black character, is, it heightens the context in which Bill Harford is slowly being initiated. I suspect that those two models were also involved with the sex group. Uh, If we could just pause for a second, though, because it just blows my mind that it's like that they erased black characters and made them white. Normally, if you hear about black characters being erased from scripts, it's usually to highlight how how racist it is. And your, your interpretation is, no, that is evidence that it is that the movie is more racially conscious by removing these black characters. Yeah, because he co-wrote the script, the, the earlier versions of the script. So, yeah, I think that he's consciously taking these black characters out because he's making a meta-commentary on whiteness. And I think that that meta-commentary also has to do with his background, uh, Kubrick's background, because Kubrick's father was a doctor. And I think in that that immediate post-Holocaust generation, they're also thinking about what is their standing in terms of whiteness, even in a city like New York, and interacting with different strata of society. So I don't think that he's making an explicit commentary about that, you know, about Jewishness in this context, because Sidney Pollack, clearly Jewish uh, character with a Jewish affect, in this particular uh, performance. But I think in Kubrick's mind, somebody who's from the Bronx, he's thinking about this meta-commentary, like how how does his life and his understanding of New York before he moved to England reflect what he saw all the time, you know? But I want to say, and I, I haven't really said this before, He is still tenuous because money doesn't buy everything. And how we know this is because in that that final scene, when he's in conversation with Tom Cruise's character, he talks about the other people at the party as if he's not really part of the group. He says, talking about Nick Nightingale, Of course it was Nick's fault. If he hadn't mentioned it to you in the first place, none of this would have happened. I recommended that little cocksucker to those people, and he's made me look like a complete asshole. 
That guy made me look like a complete asshole to those people. He says those a lot, which to me means his status with all of his wealth just gets him into the door, right? But it's still actually a bit tenuous. He doesn't say we. He says they and those. So it's all relative. And I think that that might be because of his ethnicity and religion, that he's not really there. He's in, but he's always got to prove that he should be. And that's why he was worried, and that's why he had to have the attention of Tom Cruise's character, Bill. He's like, I've got to tell you what's going on, because first of all, you're not going to endanger my position, and second of all, because you have something that I don't have with all my wealth, and that is waspness. (laughs) Right? So again, he can be naive. I don't think that Victor is just an object either. I definitely don't think he's a good guy. (laughs) That was pretty much made clear throughout the movie. Victor is not a good guy. But he is not at the absolute top of that food chain either. So we don't know who's at the top of the food chain. And that's also the point. It's invisible. It's invisible. We can't even speculate. Uh, So all of these issues of class, all of these issues of knowledge, you know, from the microcosmic to the macrocosmic, meta-commentaries on race, sex, sexuality, um, the luxury to be invisible, the luxury to be naive. All of these fantastic contrasts are embodied in this movie. It's just, and it's also beautifully shot, and it's, yeah. it's, it's off. It's unnerving in really beautiful ways through gesture, through performance, through the script, through the casting that I just think is, is revelatory. So I'm, I'm very much indebted to Kubrick and all of the, the actors and all the people involved to taking me on this journey of working more with film. So my question is, have I converted you to liking this film? I've, I'm converted enough that I'm willing to give it another shot. Let's, let's put it that okay. way. Okay, right. <laughs> baby steps. Yeah. Let me know what you think. Yeah, yeah. And no, I'm going to go look at that That's it for Love and Radio. This episode was edited with help from Paulus Van Horn. Special thanks also to the Brooklyn Museum, who hosted Tracy and I. The producer for this episode is Phil Demhofsky. Love and Radio is an independent project and a labor of love and radio, and made possible thanks to our supporters on Patreon. Thank you. With extra special thanks to Ali Mothra Perry, Andrew Simmons, Casey Anderson, Chakrit Sudachan, Dan Palmino, Jacqueline Leake, Jason V, Joe Palmieri, Sam Huffman, Sandra Nick actually has to read the Schroeder, William Spears, and Edging Candy Tuft. I'm Nicholas Sardine, Punch Punch Vanderkolk. Thank you for listening. Thank you.